Welcome back to the comics course, Miskatonic University's remote education program offering of Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History. I am your ever-suffering Professor Hamby here with my ever-suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. We are on a single mic today, but I'll try to move it back and forth as needed. Why are we on a single mic? Because I am sitting on my bed, which is a stack, uh, a platform of long boxes covered by a sheet of MDF, resting my ankle because Dr. Feckett got a little perturbed at me and attempted to stab me with a butcher knife through my ankle. Um, yeah, a little perturbed, sure. He was a little perturbed. Look, his fiance was just visiting me. I was just giving her a shoulder rub because she was tense. It was no big deal. Uh-huh. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, these things happen when you're friendly. But, as they say, the class must go on. So... That was the thing that pissed him off? Of all the things that have happened that you've done to him, that's the thing that got him to stab you? Well, he seemed to think that it was somehow meaningful that we were both sons garment patience of a fucking angel it was the sauna you don't wear your clothes into a sauna that's just uncivilized uh-huh exactly sure. she's got a shoulder rub in the sauna it was perfectly innocent i'm surprised he just tried to stab you well i mean he actually kind of went for my head first but i swept his legs and that's why he was on the ground and went for the ankle so anyway in departmental updates um i'll be teaching his classes for the next couple weeks but you know that that's how it goes right mm -hmm. yep so let's jump into how a woman helped dc find its balls and we're gonna back up before we talk about jeanette Kahn a little bit to talk about where dc was when jeanette Kahn came on board now, DC created the modern superhero comic age, right? Mm -hmm. They published Action Comics number one. They published Superman. They still had strong superhero sales even in the 50s when other people suffered, which enabled them to buy up the assets of companies like Charleston and Fawcett. Uh, they saw themselves in some ways as the carrier of, of superheroes as a genre. And they were the establishment, you know, they had an office in the publishing industry in New York City. They wore suits to the office. They wrote stuff for kids, but they definitely had the idea that they were publishers and they were grown-ups and they wrote stuff for kids, but, you know, in a very grown-up and mature way. Then by the 1960s, these bunch of dope-smoking hippies came along Actually, the early ones had been around since Timely Comics in the 80s, but they called themselves Marvel, and they published all these stupid... I mean, some of them eventually even included a talking duck and that made fun of their own characters as well as DC characters. And, you know, this guy named Chris Claremont wrote about the second generation of muties, and there are metaphors for racism and... You know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, they... A yeah, bunch of smoking... They didn't even wear suits to the office. Yeah, just a duck that went on to make billions of dollars. Right. 
So Marvel Comics, uh, led by Stan Lee, who wanted to be a novelist, actually tried to put story into the books. And Stan Lee, we could go into a long discussion here, but the pot, this lecture is not about Stan Lee. Um, but he did care about story. Sometimes maybe his more than other people's, but he did let others write also. And we ended up with the Marvel Age of Comics and the Mighty Marvel writing method, which will come back up in a couple weeks when we talk about the current copyright issues facing DC and Marvel. Whole other set of issues. And there weren't a lot of guidelines other than make Stanley happy. And it showed in sales. These stories were more interesting to a lot of people. They empathized with the characters more. Uh, it felt more genuine, the interconnectedness of the stories, as well as the fact that, say, somebody like Peter Parker tried to do good, but still was made out to be a villain in the comics. That somebody like The Thing still got depressed. Meanwhile, over at DC Comics, Batman never got depressed. In fact, he never had angst about his parents being killed. Superman was a stranger in a strange land. But he was always smiling and cheerful as the symbol of gosh darn it American pie and justice. Wonder Woman came from a society of women and is in a home of misogyny. But always smiling and cheerful no matter how many times Steve sl Trevor slapped her ass and told Honey to get him some coffee. So, and they always were trusted by the police they, they could uh, testify in court and mask without their identities being told because good guys were good guys and bad guys were bad guys. No matter how much property damage they created. And these were incredibly simplistic stories. Heroes never had problems except those created by villains. And yeah, I mean, a lot of their characters were beloved, but the stories weren't great. Now... By the 1970s, people were pretty jaded. The fact that over at Marvel, you know, they, they had writers that not only were talking about social problems through books, but exploring mysticism and all kinds of ideas. And uh, while at DC, they were continuing to do the same thing they had for decades. The average age of a writer over at Marvel was probably in the 30s, while at DC, it was closer to the 50s. They were also aging in art and other ways. And DC sales had definitely suffered, even though they paid people more money. So Warner Brothers came along, who owned DC by this point, and Carmine Infantino was leaving, who had been the longtime head honcho at DC. He had uh, been involved with the creation of The Flash back in Showcase, uh, ushering in the Silver Age of DC Comics, and had helped establish the DC style. In fact, DC had rigid rules for art and uh, uh, writing. And Warner Brothers said, you know, let's bring in a real publisher. And for, to find a real publisher, we have to look outside comics, but let's look at something closely associated. So along comes Jeanette Kahn. Now, Jeanette Kahn uh, came from a Jewish background. She grew up with a brother. They both loved comics. She had grown up to get, I believe, an art history degree. She had considered going on for a PhD and talked to a professor who said, Jeanette, you're, you're smart. You're, you're incredible. 
why do you want to go into academia where we don't make new things anymore? Go out in the world and make something. And so she did. She, with no publishing experience, got an investment and started up three magazines, Kids, Dynamite, and Smash, and became a kids' magazine publisher. And then at the age of 28, took over DC Comics. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Now, so she's a woman walking in to an outfit where most people had worked for decades. Uh, many people were twice her age, and it was all men. Women were the exception, even over at Marvel, and pretty much unheard of unless they were a secretary at DC. Joe Orlando, who became a good ally of hers at DC, is reported to have, and he denied this, uh, but reported to have gone into the bathroom and thrown up in the toilet when he heard a woman got hired in her position. Ovaries. The fear. I know. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but ovaries, in fact, are kryptonite. Kryptonite is just a metaphor for ovaries. Every time in the comics Superman is presented by kryptonite and he falls to the ground, it is actually somebody presenting an ovary to him. It's true. Absolutely true. Um, now, over time, Joe Orlando, Joe Orlando did become a good ally of hers, as did Paul Levitz, and but it would, did not have instantaneous success. Now, she started on Groundhog Day in 1976, and she sometimes said it felt like uh, the movie that was done years later, that the same stuff kept repeating itself. And she referred to it as Changjing, which I may not be pronouncing right, uh, but it means the Long March, and it was the Chinese People's uh, March as the communist nation was forming, as they had to march across the country. And it was a metaphor she used to reference what a long, slow, tedious trek it was to really establish the company. And she had a vision for the company, a vision ironically shared by Stan Lee over at Marvel. Now, at the same time that she's taking over DC, Stan Lee was stepping away from Marvel. He was moving to LA. He was looking to build up Marvel's and intellectual property. And ironically, she and he had the same vision, which is that comic books can be a place where ideas are invented and tried out and you see what resonates with people and then they can move to other mediums like TV and movies. I mean, that's obvious these days. I mean, you can't throw a dart at a pile of movie posters without hitting a whole stack of comic-inspired stuff. Uh, we just wa watched earlier today Wanted, based on the Mark Miller comic. Most people don't know that was based on a comic. You could watch that movie and never know that it had any involvement with a comic book property. Men in Black, people have no idea. Wait, what? Yes, Men in Black with Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Comic books. My life is a lie. Yes, I, 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 for so, so, so many reasons. Um, we'll talk about your parentage another time. What? I, I said another time. So, yeah, I, they had the same vision. But while Stan Lee removed himself from the comic book company to go promote this idea, she burrowed into the comic book company. Now, ironically, we now find Marvel and DC kind of swapping. Marvel had been the place where new ideas came up. As Stan Lee left and new head honchos took over, in some ways, 
the writers had less and less control. Editors were given more and more control. There were under... We went through a period at Marvel, especially in the 70s, where there were new directions and new heads of the company. It seemed like two, three times a year. And some of them did not want any change to really ever happen in the stories. Meanwhile, at DC, Jeanette Kahn began encouraging people to retire and trying to bring in new blood. And, hmm? Oh, how the tables have turned. Yep. And one of the people that Jeanette Kahn targeted was a guy named Frank Miller. Now, Frank Miller at that time was synonymous with Marvels, especially Daredevil, who he had helped turn from a second or third string title into one of the company's most popular titles, along with the X-Men. And Jeanette Kahn looked at him and said, if what's your dream project? What do you want to do that you can't do right now? And he said, I want to do a cyberpunk samurai story with time travel written in a nonlinear fashion. And I want total control over the writing and art. Now, there had never been many samurai comics published. And cyberpunk was not a well-known genre yet. I would have to check the dates, but I don't believe William Gibson's Neuromonster had been published more than a year or two earlier, at the most. And Jeanette Kahn looked at him and went, we'll publish the fuck out of it. We'll do prestige formats. We're going to push it like you wouldn't believe. Now, this was not a big seller for the direct market. Which some Marvel people used to their advantage later, saying, you know, you got stuck with all those crappy Ronin books. We're not going to publish that kind of crap. But it did serve a purpose. It doesn't matter that it might have lost DC money. I don't know. But it did something really important. It sent out a signal to people that DC wanted to put creators first. They wanted voices and they wanted visions. And then DC did something that it, if you want to declare war, this is how you declare war. This right here, what I'm about to mention, in just a few words, Jeanette Kahn threw a pair of cojones on the table the size of fucking bowling balls made out of brass and rolled them right at Marvel. With the words, your turn, stamped on them. <laughs> she gave profit sharing to creators. Oh. That's right. She worked out a formula. They, profit sharing. Now, the first X number of issues, that was DC's money. But you sold enough units? Woo. Marvel had no choice but to respond with a plan that was almost identical. But that had all... And and so, I mean, creators benefited all over the board. There's no doubt about it. And DC didn't keep it as an edge for more than a few months, basically. But it was a declaration like no other could be in the world that you could at least take an idea to DC and they'd probably legitimately listen to it. And we saw an explosion of stuff from DC, limited series, sci-fi stuff. Um, 
Spanner's Galaxy, Tailgunner Joe, Camelot 3000. This stuff started coming out. They decided to reboot the whole DC universe with Crisis, which on Infinite Crisis on Infinite Earths, which despite the long-term consequences of was generally a, considered a good idea at the time and produced some amazing stories out of it. Good or short-term, bad long-term. Yeah. Um and that's complicated. And it's bad long-term because comic books are a mythology. And what they sh the real mistake made long-term, short digression here, is they should have just undone it at once instead of the painful incremental undoing that's been done over time where they tried to keep part of it. Because that, that's just one of those things where you start pulling at the loose threads and the whole thing's coming out. There is no partial doing of that. And... Boom. She changed comics. And two works. Okay? Two works by the er, by the mid-early 80s just changed the face of comics. Alan Moore's Watchmen and Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Frank Miller may not have blown people away with Ronan, but when he came back with a 50-year-old Batman who came out of retirement because he couldn't deal with the hellhole Gotham had become anymore. And... Where he finally addressed how bad Gotham is. Right. I will tell you, I was one of those kids that looked at the collected uh, uh, version of it. And that's another thing. Now, this, I, we can expand on this a lot more when we talk about Karen Berger at a future date. But... The collected runs that Jeanette Kahn started putting out and would put through to bookstores, which showed her experience as a magazine publisher that published to bookstores, changed everything. I remember walking in to a comic book store. It was called Legends Comics, and they had by the front desk the collected graphic novels of Dark Knight Returns. That cover was dramatic, and I remember reading it and getting to the scene where the Batman goes after the mutant leader. The mutants were the name of the street gang. And he doesn't just beat him up, but he puts him into the mud and then begins to systematically break every bone in the guy's body. Damn. And it was like, I'd never seen this in comics. And the rage on the written page and the art felt real and it was visceral, and it was literature. It was both popularist, and it was literature. And it was brilliant. And then, I think it was within a year that I read The Watchmen also, which changed comics. It changed how people looked at comics. It also changed the economics. What I just said about The Dark Knight Returns, they're still doing new editions of The Dark Knight Returns. You can pull up also the top 10 graphic novels sold in a month. And it is very common to still find the Watchmen in those top 10. So these changed long-term sales. Also, Frank Miller was a guy living in New York, but now he could write for Marvel or DC. Alan Moore, he lived in England. Jeanette Kahn opened the door to these British writers and Bringing Alan Moore in long-term also brought in this guy named Neil Gaiman. Wait, he's British? Who, Neil Gaiman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never knew 
Columbus. Yep, absolutely British. Interesting. I never thought about his yep. where he's from. Now, Jeanette Kahn was also interested in social issues. She published Batman's Seduction of the Gun, which I think as an individual work has been largely forgotten, but got people to begin thinking about how Batman views violence, especially gun violence, which has been long affecting of the character and had through the character, because Batman is one of the most visual and well-understood properties in the world. I mean, there are people in third world villages in Vietnam that don't have functioning televisions and have never seen a computer. Superman are two of the most recognizable things in the world. Right. His parents were killed and he wants vengeance on evil. I mean, they, they may not even know what Gotham City is, but they know the basics of who Batman is. Yeah, because it's one thing to be recognizable and another thing to also know their backstory. And when you look at American culture and America's obsession with guns, and we have them, folks. I'm sorry if that offends you. We have obsessions with guns in this country. It's just true. And you begin talking about things like gun violence through such a recognizable symbol. It affects things. Also introduced uh, New Teen Titans by George Perez and on and on and on. We're not going to go through all of it. So, oh, oh, and... She also helped create the Wonder Woman Foundation, uh, which has been an important nonprofit. So where has all this gone? Well, Jeanette Kahn did eventually retire after 28 years. Uh, she handed over the reins to Paul Levitz, who ran DC for many years. Paul Levitz was an amazing writer in his own right. And Jeanette Kahn is still around to this day. She's no longer in the comics field. She now makes movies. She runs a production company that makes movies. She has done Academy Award nominated and I think winning films like Gran Torino with Clint Eastwood. That's Double amazing. Nickel Entertainment. Which if you think about where she positioned herself saying that comic book companies were places where ideas or mythologies, if you will, are tested. She turned out to be completely right. And her legacy lives on in that regard. Now, was everything from her time period positive? No. She was also at DC during the time when the great uh, alternate cover debacle happened, where Marvel started it. Well, DC started it. Marvel made it worse. DC then made it even worse, where they just burned out the collector's market entirely with alternate cover scams, uh, culminating in the death of Superman's you know, black band variants and stuff. Uh, arguably, under her run with DC, they also did things like the death of Superman, where the pseudo-killing off of major characters became how you sell books for a long period of time. I, not high points, creatively, in my opinion. But there was a lot of pressure for the companies to make more money in those time periods, and it was the 90s, which is frankly a decade we'd all be better off mostly forgetting. Definitely. Yeah. So that's Jeanette Kahn, who I think is an important figure in the history of comicdom as a whole. We're going to, on a later podcast, probably, uh, we'll do one on Paul Levitz, one on Karen Berger, maybe others. I like doing some of these sort of biography uh, lectures where we talk about some important figures a bit and give context to names. So any thoughts on your part before we close this out and hope that the mobile lecture recording studio actually worked? Nope. Nope. 
Okay, guys, that's it until our next lecture, where we'll continue the Christopher Priest Black Panther run. Until then.